0: Welcome to What Didn't Kill You, where we explore personal and professional stories of adaptation in the face of adversity and the causal relationship between pain and growth. I'm your host, Michael Silverman. I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and student of life that is fascinated by how professional missteps, adverse life circumstances, and pain are harnessed by people and organizations to inform future triumphs and bring deeper meaning to their life and work. Join me as we explore the mindsets, philosophies, and narratives of those who embody Friedrich Nietzsche's timeless aphorism, what does not kill me makes me stronger. All right, Adam Edelman, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. I've been super excited to have you on. You've got your your wealth of stories, your wealth of knowledge. You've been a great mentor to myself and I know a a lot of other uh, entrepreneurs in the Boulder, Denver area and abroad. I've really been looking forward to this. You know, I, I remember uh, one instance where you joined our team at a at a trade show and we all went out to dinner together. And the takeaway was that's one of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. Uh, I think, I think everyone, everyone agreed with that. So I've been
1: really looking forward to this. And, you know, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I'm really happy to be here. And I've loved uh, getting to know you and and being involved in your businesses and getting to know your team, and uh, that was a that was also a particularly enjoyable experience for me because that trade show was just part of my continuing education, and to be able to be there with you all and and see how focused you were and and learn alongside you, you know, it's just part of my the reason that I'm I'm in business, right? Is is to be able to be associated with smart people and and learn from them and and just continue to absorb and synthesize information. I think synthesis is a big part of my story. So fond memories there too. And you do that today from from your platform, Boulder Heavy
0: Industries, which uh, I'd love to talk about in a bit, but maybe you could start by just sharing, how did you come to be an entrepreneur and what's been your path to uh, operating the businesses that you do today and, and being the investor that you are?
1: Hmm. It's funny, I never, I actually never thought about being a businessman, right? I knew that I always wanted to have financial success, you know, because one half of my family were war refugees, Jewish war refugees from Germany, and they lost uh, everything in uh, in World War II, and they had been kind of successful before that. You know, like one, you know, one of my relatives had a factory and been really well-established, and they lost it all and went through a tremendous amount of, of, of personal trauma and, and lost a lot of family members. And so I think I was always, I used to joke that I, I wasn't I wasn't raised to be happy. I was raised to achieve. <laughs> <laughs> I think that probably resonates with a lot of people. <laughs> and I, right. And I had to figure out to be, how to be happy on my own um, and a lot of support. And And the other thing is that as a byproduct of the war, and the fact that you know my family lost a lot of, of of their you know their the extended family in the war i was the only child and grandchild on one side of my family for 20 years wow. and so there was a lot of uh, attention mostly good but there was also a lot of expectation and even though that expectation was often unsaid there wasn't a lot of overt pressure you know like oh you know if you don't you know if you don't you make something of yourself you're letting the family down there was never anything like that but I think, you know, I, I feel like I ended up embodying a lot of people's hopes and dreams for the future, right? And there was a lot of that of, of unconscious transmission of, uh, of that. You know, some people call it epigenetics, but uh, the, I think that, that was there. And so while I never really thought about being a businessman um, or being an entrepreneur or an executive, I always had a desire to succeed and excel and to generate uh, financial independence, because as one of my grandfathers used to say, who was a, a Holocaust survivor, he said that, you know, a rich man uh, with no money is still a rich man, but a poor man with a lot of money is still a poor man. <laughs> and so, you know, you can't unlearn uh, your, the skills that have been passed to you around how to create wealth and financial independence. And it's up to you to find ways to, to, uh, to rediscover those and use those when, when you're in moments of scarcity. So in a mentality of abundance versus scarcity. So I think I always had that, that with me. Early in life, you know, I was thinking that I wanted to work in uh, the film and TV industry, in the media business in Hollywood because that's where I grew up and a lot of my family and our extended friends were you know in that space they were you know famous musicians or Hollywood producers or or talent in front of the camera or behind the camera or they were attorneys that worked in entertainment and so I had a lot of a lot of exposure to that and and that was really aspirational as well so not only did I want to to succeed in some way, but I was exposed to a lot of people who were really successful, you know, who had Oscars on their mantelpiece and, you know, and, and houses in Malibu, but I, you know, we didn't have any of that. My, you know, my, my immediate family were solidly middle class or, or upper middle class. You know, my father was, is uh, an attorney and my mother was a therapist and, and it was our extended family and friends that were that were very successful, and and even though I didn't grow up in the same scarcity that my mother or my grandparents did right after the war, my life by comparison to theirs was gold-plated. It was never, you know, filled with a lot of wealth, right? That that was just something that I was exposed through to through to extended family. So I think that you know maybe it was in the cards, and this for me to become an entrepreneur in the sense that I knew what was possible, and and I also wanted to create that. To recreate that financial independence maybe that my family had had before before the war and so but originally it was going to be in film and tv and so my you know my first job was in um in international television in satellite television and in, in in a company that what became Directv. and because my family had been refugees and they had lived in south america before after the war and they were you know and they were native german speakers and they became spanish speakers and then they learned they learned english I was always raised with an international exposure to culture and language. And I grew up you know, visiting my family in other countries. And so I'd always gravitated towards international business or, not, or international work. But I think that I knew, here's the moment I knew that I was going to be uh, a businessman is when I was faced with the prospect of being a starving artist in the entertainment industry and not knowing if I was going to be the guy peddling the script at age 50 and still trying to make it and working service jobs just to pay the bills while I was pursuing my creative dreams. When I was faced with that prospect, I think I lasted like a whole two months <laughs> or three months before I said, you know, I can still be involved in the, in in this field, but, but have a consistent paycheck and get stock options and all of these things. And so, um, you know, I think there is some regret that I never, I never applied my entrepreneurial skills to the creative arts, and we'll come back to that towards the end of the story because I ended up doing that later in life and I'm start and I've had some success in that because I never really let go of that desire. But we'll come back to that in a second because I ended up weaving that into my entrepreneurial story arc. So I took this job working in international business development for what became DirecTV, and they made me part of the team that launched what became DirecTV in Latin America. And I worked in a couple of different satellite businesses. Uh, The first was based in Washington, D.C., and they owned the largest satellite network in uh, in the world at the time, a company called Intelsat. And it was fascinating because this was just before DirecTV. I ended up starting right out of college, moved to D.C. and got a job with Intelsat. And it was a company that was incorporated under a charter from the United Nations to be the international satellite communications infrastructure. And so almost all the world's phone calls and all the world's international television and news was transmitted on this satellite network. And they had three official languages, English, Spanish, and French. And I spoke all three rare for an American at the time. Only 10% of the employees were Americans in this building. So a building of 700 people with only 10% Americans. So it was like going to work in a foreign country every day, which was fascinating for me, but I think I learned pretty quickly. I was only there for a few years and I learned pretty quickly that in order to really make an impact, I needed to be working in a true for-profit business, not not a, a something like the World Bank, because it was more like a UN-based organization at the time, which was great for developing diplomatic skills, but it was frustrating for someone who was, you know, sort of a hard-charging businessman, even at that even at that age, right, wanting to get things done. I met at an international TV trade show, I met the president of uh, Hughes, uh, like Howard Hughes, you know, uh, Hughes Aircraft Company, which owned DirecTV at the time because they were the ones that built all the satellites because these satellites cost hundreds of millions of dollars and and, and the capital risk was such that a TV company couldn't do it. You needed an aerospace company. And so Hughes had partnered with all of these different TV networks to build and launch it. And I met him. And I thought, you know, they were just starting to do this internationally. They didn't really know anything about international business. I had been working in in Latin American TV for a couple of years, but I was 24, maybe 25. But, uh, you know, this is just, I think I was already leveraging entrepreneurial skills at that age, even though, you know, I wasn't, I was still working for someone else. So I sent him a fax, that's, (laughs) you know, no one was really email like that outside of your own organization at that time. Right. And I sent and I sent him a fax and I said, you know, I really enjoyed meeting you. And I thought that your desire for international expansion is great. And I've had a lot of ideas about how to how to do that. And I'd love to be working in a more focused organization, love to talk to you about it. So, you know, a week later I get a call from his SVP. A week after that, they fly me back out to LA. And then three weeks after that, I'm on the job. And then shortly thereafter, I spent the next four years. Flying 60% of my time uh, with first with a base in LA, then with a base in Miami, and then with a base in Rio, visiting and working in every country in Latin America except Cuba, Nicaragua, and Suriname, helping set up uh, satellite operations for uh, for satellite TV. So that was an amazing education from age 25 to 29. You know, based 28 and a half, 29. Right, gone most of the time and living out of a suitcase and. Um, and mostly interacting with people who knew a lot more than I did, um, who uh, had a lot more experience for a long time. I was the, I was the youngest person and the least experienced person in the room. So I really had to be on my toes the whole time. And I, I think that's a, that's a theme for me on, in, in terms of my entrepreneurship is steep learning curve, right? If I'm not struggling to keep up, I'm not feeling challenged. You know, that industry turned out to be a really, uh, a really great launch pad for uh, what has made up the majority of my career, which is digital, uh, digital media, digital marketing, uh, because it, it, those satellites became, were the early transmission platform for the earliest version of the internet, right? Because fiber optic cables uh, really didn't become prevalent as, a, as the primary transit path for broadband until the early 2000s. And so most of the world's internet was carried by a satellite, at least internationally. During that time, and so I had very early versions of all of these things, and I could see, you know, kind of coming, you know, down the proverbial Fifth Avenue, what was going to happen. And around that time, one of my best friends was at uh, Harvard Business School. He said, "Hey, you know, there's this thing called the Harvard Business School Business Plan Competition." You can, you know, partner with whoever you want. You don't just have to do it with students who are actively enrolled. You can bring in people that you think are smart from other companies or, or, or other other places outside the school, and you guys can come up with a business plan and you can pitch it. And it's just a fun competition. It's a fun exercise. Like, let's do it. And I said, Well, that sounds great. You know, so let's 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 do that. And I, I still I don't think was at a place where I was imagining that that was going to be a path for me, and I knew that what I was doing in the corporate world was not going to be forever. I knew that at some point I wanted to create my own luck, you know, and whether that was going to be in the creative arts back in in LA and Hollywood, or it was going to be something else, but I still hadn't hatched, you know, any, any plans to start a business. It really wasn't on my radar. Also because I was 28 or 27, even 27 or 28. And I was the managing director of Latin America for a division of a fortune 500 company. And I had stock options and I had an assistant and I had, you know, six figure salary and a really interesting job. Right. Absolutely. And so I felt like I had achieved, you know, I had overachieved for where I was in my life at that time. And so I wasn't really, you know, thinking beyond about what was possible. And I, I think the lights hadn't been turned on in that, in, in that, in that regard, I was, I wasn't complacent. I mean, I was hardworking, hard charging, you know i had set up a deal where with the the uh, brazilian telecommunications ministry to allow uh hughes and direct tv to operate a director home television satellite that was dedicated for brazil and i I had personally orchestrated a meeting between the president of Hughes and the, and the president of the, or the minister of of communications and all these American lawyers came down and I'm, and I'm 28. And I remember that, you know, the president of Hughes who was like, they weren't sure whether I was like a mascot or I was, you know, I was actually an executive because I was like, I was really young. Right. And they would teach me all the time. They're like, you know, like, you're not old enough to be in this room. Right. And, but I was the kid that made it happen. And so it was funny because I had this strange combination of like imposter syndrome and a superiority complex because I'm thinking, damn, you know, I'm, I'm that good and, you know, I should be sure. Right. And, and you have to have a little bit of that because I think if you don't believe it, you know, no one else is going to, and there's a fine line. And we'll talk about that later between, you know, believing your own bullshit, but believing yourself enough to, to, to achieve. Right. And a lot of people run, run afoul of that because it's, you know, it's, it is a really narrow margin there, but at any rate. My friend called me up and said, let's do this business plan. And I said, well, you know, we need more than just another person. Let's call our other good friend who had uh, also recently graduated business school and was happy in this corporate job, in a corporate marketing job at this uh, software company in Dallas. And so we started meeting nights and weekends on the phone, right, conference calls. And then we started traveling to visit with each other in Dallas, Boston. I was living in Miami at the time, you know, Latin American focus. And we put this business plan together. We said, what's the biggest trend? And this was like circa 1998. E-commerce, right? And what's an underserved market in e-commerce? And we were really prescient, by the way. We'll talk also later about, you know, the difference between ideas and execution, right? And life being an execution play. So we said, people have figured out selling, you know, travel online. People have figured out selling books online. People have figured out selling Computer equipment online. There, there were a handful of things, but one category that was still really underserved and that and that people had a lot of fear about, both consumers and uh, retailers, was apparel. Right now, that it seems like second nature to us, but you know, over 20 years ago, people said, "What?" You know, the, the makers said, "Boy, if I put my product online." It's going to cheapen the brand. Yeah. It's you know because online is just for discount houses, right? Online is clearance. Online is going to it's going to really you know make my brand equity look terrible. I, you know I'm selling in Neiman's and I'm selling in Saks and Bloomingdale's and Macy's and if I put if I put that stuff on a website. You know, they're, they're not going to want to buy from me anymore because they're going to think it's cheap. Yep. And then, you know, the consumers thought, boy, what's going to happen? You know, if I order it online and it doesn't fit, how do I return yeah. it? Yeah.
0: It's amazing how we're still having versions of those conversations today, right? But we still yeah. are in some ways. It's, uh, some well, ways. You, you're going to buy your produce online, but then you're not going to trust, you know, if the avocados are going to be ripe. Right. And, yeah.
1: Yeah. We've gotten past that. I think I COVID is <laughs> yeah, COVID we, the certainly push has. Push. Yeah. And, and we wanted, and we didn't want to boil the ocean. And we said, well, and this was our first mistake, I think. We said, what's an apparel category that is, I mean, it makes logical sense, but what's an apparel category is commodity driven that has a a simpler assortment of inventory so you don't have to constantly be stocking seasonal fashion items and has a a loyal customer base. And so we said it's men's basics, right? Because at that time, um, this was the beginning of the so-called business casual revolution. So remember, until this time in the story, I wore a suit and a tie to work every day. I mean, casual Fridays didn't happen until I was probably, you know, 27 or 28. I mean, so, you know, I had the first like three or four years of my, of my career. It was, it was suit and tie.
0: Until the casual tech engineers started making a lot of money and the the casual thing became a status symbol, right? right?
1: Totally. And so, and so we thought, you know, this, but this was the very beginning of that trend. It was coinciding with our thinking. So we thought, you know what? We are going to build a online store that focuses on business casual wear for men, which which we called smartcasual.com, or I, I now affectionately refer to as smartcasual.bomb. But we'll get to that in a second, because <laughs> that's part of the entrepreneurial <laughs> journey. And so I, we were in good company, though, because I remember, fast forward to a much more successful venture where I was sitting outside of Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos' personal office at Amazon headquarters in the Pac-Med building in Seattle, and right next to his office door, he had prominently framed the Barron's uh, uh, newspaper cover from June or July of, of 2000, the, the, dot, the big dot-com bubble burst that had his face on a cast iron bomb with a lit fuse that said, Amazon.bomb (laughs) question mark, right? And of course this was, you know, this was 10 years out or eight or 10 years after that. And, you know, and and he had built a massive, massive business which is now even more massive. Sure. And, but you know, he had that there probably probably as a uh, as a reminder, but I'm not sure what kind of reminder. You know, I don't know if it was yeah. a, uh, if it was a rebuke to others who who had dared not to believe in him or it was a reminder to himself that to, to persevere. Probably a little bit of both, right? Yep. So <laughs> I and mean, then that's kind of what ended up being the case for us, but we put this business this business plan together and we participated in the in the pitch and we didn't win but we got enough positive feedback that we thought, you know, there could be something here. And, and these two friends and I, we had always dreamed about doing something together or being in each other's lives, working together, but you know, it was never anything substantive. It was just a bunch of young guys, you know, having, having some dreams together about, you know, how much fun it would be to you know hang out. Right. But we all found ourselves with really valuable and complimentary skills by the time we were in our late twenties, and this coincided with you know, the, the wave of, uh, of, of dot-com startups, especially e-com startups. <clears throat> and so we said, you know what, let's, let's take this further. So we started really amplifying the business plan. We got to a point where it was go, no go. Are we gonna quit our jobs and make a real go of this? And that process was fascinating because in the end, <clears throat> one, one person was really enthusiastic, another person was on the fence, and another person was totally resistant. And all three people ended up becoming extremely successful entrepreneurs in their own right afterwards, myself included. But, you know, we all had to go through different processes to get there. But we finally committed to doing it and, you know, gave notice, quit the jobs and, you know, got the talks from all of our bosses. Like, are you crazy? Right. You know, you guys are all on these tracks to be super successful. You know, you've got options in this gold plated thing. And, you know, and I'm like, nope, I'm going to do this crazy thing called the startup. And had you guys
0: developed any traction at all with the idea at
1: that point? Were there any sales or anything? This was the era of, of being able to raise millions of dollars on a piece of paper, on a, on a PowerPoint deck, on a business plan, on got pure it. vaporware. So, so we quit our jobs. We went around the country to friends and family, got commitments for enough money to, to be able to you know, live and function for a little while. And then... Just on our business plan, we went out and you, this would not happen today. Okay, we were in front of Draper Fisher Jurvetson. We were in front of Tim Draper. You know, on a on a on a piece Unreal. of paper. Okay, because that was the <laughs> day when you know, this, there weren't as many entrepreneurial opportunities. And it's like in the old days in Hollywood, if you had a film that you would package, people would look at it, right? Because there just weren't that yeah. many. And you know, we, so we went up and down Sand Hill Road, where all the VCs are in Palo Alto, and then we were out in Boston, where there's another concentration of VCs. We had the same pitch that I basically described to you in so many words. And, you know, we had at that point, no money. Uh, We had no website. We had no, um, no board, no, nothing. We just had like, like literally like three guys who, none of whom had any substantive experience in the apparel industry or ever made a (laughs) website before, or had ever done anything related to what we were talking about. Okay. Just to put it in context, but we had a lot of chutzpah. And we had a lot yeah. of people to be fair, right? We were all clearly, even then, you know, the kind of people who were bright and 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 likely to be successful in whatever they did in their lives, right? So that I'm I'm sure that had something to do with it. Anyways, we walked into a venture capital firm that shall remain nameless in Boston, and and uh, <clears throat> two hours later, we walked out with a draft term sheet signed, which is also unheard of I- I- anymore, right? Yeah for five million (laughs) dollars and Uh, unreal unreal right and you know i think that while we can't take credit for that happening i think a lot of it was the time right sure it was this like 99 98 99 yeah and yeah yeah so i don't think we could take you know a lot of it was just irrational exuberance you know the part of the VPs, but you know we had we had we had a little bit more than a pulse, right. <laughs> and, uh, and we had some credentials, and we had done quite a bit each uh, ourselves before you know before getting to that stage in our lives, even if we didn't have subject matter expertise. And so on the backs of that term sheet, we opened an office in New York across the School of Visual Arts um, 23rd between 2nd and 3rd. We hired Barney's. May Barney's rest in peace from Barney's, Barney's Department Store. We hired Barney's former chief merchandising officer. We got the co-founder of Perry Ellis on our board. We got Richard Marcus of uh, Neiman Marcus on our board, and they all invested alongside. Uh-huh. And we got Polo and a number of other brands, Claiborne, other brands that mainly were Macy's. We were going middle market to agree to sell us. We hired Macy's former head of of logistics and operations to build a warehouse for us in New Jersey. And we began building a website and we spent a good amount of money, seven figures plus, which seems ridiculous now when you can just, you know, have a website that's far more sophisticated than the one that we built on Shopify for like $29.99 a month, (laughs) right? And, but you know, none of that existed, you know, you couldn't magnify to see the cloth pattern, you know, you couldn't try something on virtually, you couldn't do any of that stuff. So we were inventing a lot of tech. And we were doing what the VCs all told us to do, which was get big very fast, right? Grow, spend all your money because the goal is to capture market share and get to proof of concept and then we'll be there at the next round. Well, what coincided with our need for the next round? The dot-com bubble bursting and that newspaper headline, "Amazon bomb," right? So <laughs> did any VC want to put any more money into any e-commerce business at that time? None, right? And so we found ourselves in a really difficult situation where we're trying to keep the business alive. And we had some incredible friends and family who knowing that they would probably never see the money again, you know, gave us a little bit longer of a lifeline to see if, you know, if we could raise money, you know, we ended up, you know, selling off some of the pieces of the tech that we had built to other businesses. But at the end of the day, you know, it was a donut hole. It was a total loss for us and for our investors. And, but, What it taught us to do in the span of a year, because that's how long it lasted, about a year and a half, by the way, uh, which is remarkable, right? How fast those things go was to fail extraordinarily quickly, pivot multiple times, understand strengths and weaknesses and complementary skills, be able to be very honest with each other about fears, shortcomings, personal interactions, dispute resolution, fundraising, managing in a crisis. In other words, it gave us, it gifted us some fundamental skills that, an awareness of what not to do that I think launched those of us that were involved on a path to be much more successful entrepreneurs. So, you know, it was, I don't want to exaggerate, but it was many years of learnings compressed into one and a half. And and the other thing that it left us with was, the confidence that we could do this, the knowledge of what of what needed to be done, the confidence to overcome the fear and inertia associated with taking extreme risk, which is something I think we already all had, but it really unlocked it in a meaningful way. And most importantly, what not to do, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> we had, we you know, we, we looked back and we had, you know, like a the road was littered with dead bodies and all of the mistakes that we'd made along the way, because As much as I could tell you all these wonderful stories about us sitting in, you know, in David Lauren, Ralph Lauren's son's private office and, you know, convincing him why he needed to sell us product and it wasn't going to cheapen his brand, you know, for all those great stories and the VC story where we walked out with the term sheet, you know, there were all sorts of stories that that should be part of, you know, a Silicon Valley episode on HBO, right? (laughs) Cautionary tale. And and I think that every successful entrepreneur, whether they will admit it or not, part of their success hinges on having those experiences and honestly confronting them in a post-mortem environment and incorporating sure. those into what they do next.
0: And I think, I mean, with that time, uh, during that time with the dot-com crash, yeah. it seems like it would be really easy to just write it off on, oh, well, right. you know, everyone else went this way too, so it's not our fault, yeah. and just be able to kind of explain it the way away that way. So I yeah. think the fact that you took it as the learning experience and, right. and you took the the pain as, you know, this is a personal thing that we can improve right. on. I think that's an important difference that doesn't always happen, right? To sit there with it and, yeah. and learn
1: from sure. it. Sure. I mean, look, if you gave me, and I'd like to believe this is true, it may not be because there are, you know, circumstances do play a role for sure, right? And, you know, maybe if there hadn't been a bubble burst, you know, we would have gotten more money and and we would have had so much money that it would have overcome all of our own limitations, right? But if you trans- yeah. if you transported me back in time to 1999 or 2000 and wrote me a check, you know, me today, a check for 5 million dollars, I'd give you back 20, right? Yeah. <laughs> After a few years, you know, <laughs> even though the bubble burst, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think that you're right. Some of it is just is just being honest with yourself and growing from those mistakes and not making the same mistakes again. And so, we all learn from that and, you know, I went to lick my wounds. I went back into the four years, three years, started having kids. And uh, my wife had been working in politics in DC and I moved, I'd been commuting from DC to New York during that time. And we'd got married and we started having kids. And, and so I moved back into the satellite industry to lick my wounds. And a friend of mine in that industry had was running a division of a public company. And he said, hey, you know what? Why don't you come back? You can really help me out. It doesn't have to be forever. I've just taken over this business. We're acquiring lots of companies. I need your help. You know, you know what to do in terms of structuring international deals. I said, great. be perfect and i got back in and i realized that the longer i was in there the longer my entrepreneurial skills were going to rust and i became very almost anxious about getting stuck into the corporate world again even though it was incredibly lucrative you know i bought a really nice house and a really nice car and and i was almost getting too comfortable and i was looking and saying you know boy the experience regardless of the stress and the late nights and the and the failures and the anxiety and not knowing if I was going to make payroll, despite all of that, I derived so much free, creative freedom and energy and optimism and the ability to be, you know, to, to really have the business reflect who I am. Mm-hmm. I missed that. And it was visceral. And so I didn't last very long in that role. I mean it seemed like an eternity, which I think it was only like three and a half years. And then I said, well, I need a break. Right? I don't have an idea. I don't know what I want to do. But I said maybe I just need to take a break and think about what's next in my life. I said, but I can't just not do anything. And so I went back to my first love, and I said, you know what? I never gave my shot to be myself—a shot to be that screenwriter that I always wanted to be, right? To be the pure creative. And so after I helped sell the business that I was involved in, it's that brought me on to do that kind of turnaround, roll up. Where it was more of a roll up than a turnaround, and then. I got an exit which was enough money to buy me some some uh, creative freedom for a while and uh, not enough to retire by any means but enough to be able to be financially independent for a period of time. And, and I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to disconnect my Blackberry from the internet and from email. I'm going to shut off my cell phone and I'm going to write. And then I'm also going to start building rebuilding my connections in LA and and begin um begin trying to develop some film projects as from the standpoint of being a screenwriter and so for about a year i was living in the dc area commuting out to to la and pitching film projects and and writing scripts and got a few things into development and started to really be energized by that And i and you know it was almost as energizing as being an entrepreneur you know writing four or five hours a day and then speaking with agents and managers and setting up meetings with producers and of course i would say to the people listening don't try this at home, <laughs> you know, I had one really unfair advantage, which, you know, it wasn't the financial independence, you know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't my experience because by this time I was in my thirties, it was the fact that I knew a lot of people, right? Because sure. I had worked in television and then my family had been in that business. And so, you know, it wasn't ice cold and, you know, they had tried to talk me out of it multiple times because they knew what the risks were. They didn't want, <laughs> you know, me to have to suffer what they suffered my right? typical, you no know, typical family. And, but at some point I said, I'm doing it, you know, and there's nothing you can say that's going to stop me. And so they said, okay, great, you know, let's help you. And, but it wasn't the kind of help, like, you know, I'm going to make your movie. It was, sure. you know, I'm going to give you honest feedback, you know, on what, on what you're trying to do. So, so I did that and I was starting to have success. I, you know, I was having development conversations. I, I was talking to Disney about being a staff writer, you know, in their studio. And I had a, had a script, a, a thriller script that was, in development with the team that had uh, that had produced uh, *Raging Bull* and *Rocky* and a few other big pictures and Charles Bronson movies, so they they were serious shop. So I was, you know, I was starting to feel like I was getting traction, and I went out to Boulder. And at this time, by the way, we really wanted to move back west. So we were thinking, okay, you know, it doesn't make sense to be on the East Coast anymore. You know, our families are all in the West, and. And so we were looking for places to move to, and I went to visit a friend who had just had a, a child in Boulder, and he had been one of my former business partners in, in the failed startup. And we started talking. He said, "How are you doing?" I said, oh, "I'm great. I love my writing, and I'm I'm living off you know savings. That's not indefinite, but I really love what I'm doing. I'm getting a lot of energy. I'm starting to get traction in Hollywood." And I said, "What are you doing?" He said, well, you know, I just exited this other business and. You know, I've been meditating and writing. I don't know what I want to do next. And, you know, I'm living off savings, but that's not indefinite either. And we looked at each other and we said, you know, we know what we're doing now. We know how to build an online business. Why don't we build something that can cover our burn, that can fund the things that we're most interested in doing right now, our passion projects, that doesn't require a lot of work so that we have most of our time to dedicate to our avocations. And so it was like, you know, it turns out to be the best recipe for creating wealth, right? Make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, with the least expenditure of effort, right? That should be every every business philosophy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What started as a part-time, this is about 2006, what started as a part-time enterprise to fund our personal passions after having gone through that, our entrepreneurial journey up to that point in the first month that we began running some e-commerce consulting operations for other people, but basically helping helping people that already had established e-commerce websites market and generate traffic to those websites, which is something we'd learned to do when we were running the e-commerce apparel business. It just leverages. Like of affiliate marketing? Yeah, kind, kind of affiliate of marketing in a way. Maybe a more sophisticated version of that. We call it performance marketing and or pay for performance marketing, right? Where they were paying us purely on a success fee basis, you know, for the traffic that we generated for them because we had access, we knew a lot of people who had traffic sources that weren't, they weren't just search or email or, uh, or banner ads. And so we were brokering those deals for them, you know, just using our noggins, right? And letting the web do the work. And so the first month that we started, we made $30,000. <laughs> and, and, and then by the, you know, and this was August, and then by December, I think we made in one month, we made like $80,000. And you know, we looked at each other and we said, you know, I know that this would require, if we were to do this, it would require giving up all these things that we're so passionate about and setting that to one side and maybe not coming back to it for a long time. But boy, if we keep doing it at this rate, we could uh, maybe even have more financial freedom, right? And then then we could come back to the writing and you could go back to the meditating and the gardening. And we thought, okay, you know what? (laughs) Let's give it a shot. Let's see how far it could go. And so in three years, between 2006 and 2009, The business that eventually became what is now Boulder Heavy Industries, just in those three years, grew from $30,000 in one month to a $30 million run rate. And it was like having, you know, with 30 or 40 employees, so incredibly efficient, very capital efficient, Mm -hmm. and entirely bootstrapped. Because we had lost everyone's money in the last business, we had no appetite to go out (laughs) and raise (laughs) (laughs) money. Like, we're only going to risk our own dollars in this one. And so... So it was like having a rocket strapped to your back, right? And a lot of that was an alignment of being a lot more experienced, again, knowing what mistakes not to make, and then the timing. We caught the second wave of the internet, and we were prepared. We weren't learning on anyone's dime. We weren't having to figure out what to do and what not to do. We had a much better, better understanding of what needed to be done, and so we were able to stay ahead of the curl of the wave and stay in motion the whole time. And so that business grew to a nine-figure business within six years and entirely bootstrapped. And I think that the, you know, there's some lessons there too, that I've, I've since learned around the pluses and minuses of bootstrapping a business, because you look at every dime as a dime out of your pocket in some cases, and there are very few bootstrapped entrepreneurs that can be strategic enough to continue to reinvest what would otherwise be distributable profit into their businesses. And so our growth you know, in in hindsight, I think those six years could have been from $30,000 to $300 million, you know, instead of a hundred, if we had taken a view of the business as growth oriented shareholders, but instead, because, you know, we started out, our mentality was make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible with the least expenditure of effort. Right. And so, you know, we ended up becoming very successful financially but we limited our growth prospects which is another lesson that i think you know i've since taken away and so the business that became boulder heavy industries started as one company known as imm which is still in the boulder heavy industries portfolio and that business grew from doing some affiliate marketing for some small websites to becoming the primary display advertising agency for amazon the primary affiliate marketing partner for at and wireless and doing work for Land Rover and Toyota and nationwide insurance and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we leveraged our experience in pitching and closing large corporate deals and, and our experience in the internet and our past failures and synthesized it all. So I think that that's the entrepreneurial story, but that's really just the first, that's like the first chapter, I think it's a long, you know, maybe it's the, maybe it's the first two or three chapters, right? But I feel like I really didn't come into my own as an entrepreneur until until IMM encountered financial difficulties and the products and services that IMM was offering began to not be in as much of demand as they were during the heavy, heavy growth years. And we had to really rethink and diversify and decide whether or not we were going to reinvest in the business. And I think that the principles and the learnings that I derived from that second stumble, right? If, if Smart Casual was an abject failure, right? Uh, uh, IMM's uh, transitional struggles and the turnaround and rebuilding of that business and its transformation into the platform business and portfolio company that Boulder Heavy Industries is today. And I think there's more to come, but that was really my transition into, I think fully inhabiting what it takes to be an entrepreneur and to create and sustain a vision for a group of people that are looking for something to believe in, to be able to manage and embody the stress and uncertainty of not knowing what the outcome is gonna be and to innovate while carrying the load, the emotional load of the uncertainty and being responsible for maintaining the engagement and enthusiasm of a team, right? I think those were the three things that I had to put together. And so, you know, my formula would be grit or determination, you know, some version of that. I think that served me incredibly well And so much so, I think, you know, that it's two sides of the same coin, right? You can be loyal to a fault to a person, and you can be loyal to a fault to an idea, right? And there are people who will fold a hand too soon because they, at the first sign of trouble, think, oh, well, it's not going to work. And there are people who will hang on well beyond, you know, the time to let go. And, And I think that the challenge for me has been to always find what that efficient frontier is. Yeah. and that's been something that I think I done well in that's that's part of my part of my formula because unlike a lot of entrepreneurs I'm not either pure visionary like a pure startup guy where I'll come in launch a great idea get everyone really excited get the momentum get all the traction but ultimately the infrastructure and the operations are a mess and you need to bring in a grown up to run it once it gets to a certain place or it's just going to fall apart Right. Nor am I just an operator who is lacking vision and gets into analysis paralysis and doesn't really want to commit or take risk. Right. I've managed to kind of integrate the two. And that's my version. And I'm not saying that's the right version, but that's where i found success is being my own visionary and my own operator. Operator, right. yeah. and it, would you say that
0: finding that line is is a gut feel for you, or have you developed a sort of a mental model for for deciding? Uh, I think
1: it's a bit of both. Yeah. You know, it's definitely nature. You know, I mean, I think if you ask a lot of experienced pediatricians, you know, who have seen thousands of people from age zero to eighteen, and you ask them nature versus nurture, they'll say all say nature. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I think nature does play a role, but I think it's it's no coincidence that the early part of my career was almost a 50-50 balance between working for myself in an entrepreneurial capacity with a lot of risk and uncertainty and working in a corporate environment. Because that second business that, that I, when I went back to lick my wounds in corporate America, it ended up being acquired by a division of GE. And so I was exposed to to you know Six Sigma and a GE process, and I stayed on there for a while. And before that, I worked at Hughes Communications, Hughes Aircraft, DirecTV, And so I had a lot of opportunity to work in a corporate environment with structure, process, accountability, uh, the need to be collegial and, you know, reporting and things like that. And so I think that I had training that influenced how I kind of prosecuted a, a startup or a business, right? And sometimes that's a liability because, you know, in the early days before I really came into my own as an entrepreneur where I could be my own visionary, I relied on partners who were messy by nature, but they were completely unbound by the confines of reality. And they're like, this is going to be fucking amazing and we can do this. And 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 I played the role of the practical, right, of the voice of reason of, okay, well, I, agree, I love the vision, but let's work backwards about how we're going to actually make it a reality. And so I think some of it was nature, but some of it was also nurture, just that I happened to have the experience of that corporate structure.
0: And you mentioned having to turn around IMM Mm -hmm. after you had built it and it had been a big, big success. Mm -hmm. You mentioned pivoting a few times with e-commerce startup. It strikes me that to be able to turn around your own business, you have to recognize where you've previously made mistakes, run afoul, and then come up with a new way of doing things which I think takes a level of removal from the everyday operating experience yeah. and the emotional ties to your decision-making. And I think the same thing is true with, with pivots in a lot of businesses mm-hmm. where you have to say, all right, what we're doing right now isn't working. Can we still figure out a way to make this work but fundamentally change what we're doing? And I think the most successful entrepreneurs that I've been exposed to are the ones that are able to figure out when to do that and how to do that how have you faced that other than just looking at the pnl and saying well we got to do something here cuz this isn't right
1: you know i think one of the things that i've learned and that it might be my survivor gene from my family who's had to survive a lot of a lot of challenges you know being refugees and uh, having to recover pivot you know in life right just to survive i've always it's always been a priority for me to anticipate what might come around the corner and i think that has, that played a large role in how I approached the pivot and turnaround for IMM and Boulder Heavy Industries. Like for example, you know, IMM was becoming a victim of its own success. We had contracts in some cases, single relationships that were live and die by the pen stroke of one or two people at a large corporation that were worth 20, 30, $40 million, $50 million. So, you know, the proverbial three-legged stool, right? You cut off one leg and, you know, the stool falls over. And, you know, we were doing such a good job for these businesses that they kept giving us more and more and more. And because we were cash flow oriented versus equity value oriented, you know, it was hard to say no because that money would drop directly to the bottom line and be distributable income for the partners. So, you know, it was very much kind of a victim of your own success situation. And so over time we had built up a highly concentrated and not very diverse book of business. And, you know, a lot of blue chip names but a small number. And so I began to see pretty quickly what was going to happen and which eventually did. And so one of the pivots that we made early on while we were still engaged with these larger concentrated relationships is to say, we need to diversify our business. And you know, if we're engaged with AT&T, we can't call up Verizon because of the nature of those relationships. They would be considered competitive and, and we would lose AT&T if we, if we signed a deal with Verizon. Right. And we were large enough to be able to create a separate off division or company with a, a wall between them. It just wasn't feasible. And even then, it might not have passed muster with with AT&T and we couldn't risk losing that business. I'm just giving you an example of how that might work. And so we said, well, we have all of these products and services that if properly productized where we partnered with other people who were talented and gave them capital and gave them infrastructure and and gave them the benefit of operating under our umbrella, we could build diversified set of products and services that would, as they grow, allow us to sell. Because in the advertising space, if you're a service business, you're limited to maybe working with one or two large players in each vertical for competitive reasons, right? But if you're a, you a product or a service, well, you can sell to everyone because you don't have the same strategic relationship, right? You're just providing a licensing a product and you're not gaining any insider information about how someone's operating their business. So, you know, everyone uses Google. It's not like only at and uses Google and then Verizon uses Facebook, right? And so we realized that in order for us to leverage, continue to leverage our intellectual property, we needed to create products and actually create business units. And that was kind of the origin of BHI. And so we started doing that a couple of years before IMM started to stumble economically because of the of the churn and some of those concentrated relationships. And that bought us enough time to be able to launch those businesses. And you know, in some cases, those were formation companies, businesses that we made ourselves and funded ourselves and brought either talent in to run. And others were either investments or acquisitions, right? And so it was through sort of a combination of those three initiatives that we built a portfolio that exists today in Boulder Heavy Industries. The other takeaway was that I had to be really honest with myself about the decision I made some years before to remain as chairman and CEO of IMM when my other co-founders had desired to be bought out or to leave the business and not be involved. And at that time, we had a conversation and we said, you know, should we hire professional management who's far more experienced, pay them a market salary and let them continue to grow this business because they're industry experts in the business. But I was actually yearning to really have my own entrepreneurial experience, right? I wanted, remember I was telling you before that I really love the steep learning curve, right? I wanted to learn what it was like to be solely responsible for the success or failure of a business. And I wanted that mirror. I wanted to come and look in that mirror every day. And it was really selfish because I learned the hard way. And I like to joke that, I could have just gone to business school, you know, and gotten like a, you know, one of those, those senior executive MBAs at at HBS, you know, for a hundred grand instead of maybe spending $5 million, you you know, on a series of, of, of expensive lessons around identifying, you know, the right people for a team, you know, building a team, pivoting quickly. But the, probably the biggest lesson I learned was, and I think this is probably one of the most important things I could share with anyone listening to the podcast is I was unwilling to acknowledge what had failed and that I had failed for an extended period of time. Right. And it wasn't that the business had failed. The business was continuing to go on, and we were launching these business units, and and we were acquiring these portfolio companies, and and you know it wasn't that you know by anyone's external view we were struggling. We were in you know a really we built a new office building, and and we were continuing to expand in the marketplace. But on the inside, we were struggling. We had a team that you know, that wasn't aligned, that was pulling in multiple directions. We had a lot of backstabbing, and it had been so long. Since I had done anything more than stub my toe in business, you know, we had that, that rocket run for nearly 10 years. And so I had forgotten what it felt like to fail. And that was something that bit me in a number of ways. One, I was unwilling to admit defeat, which also is beneficial, right? I think, in sure, the it's end, a strength. you know, in the end, that was also a strength and it, and it has helped me but in, in certain areas where I probably needed to acknowledge that to myself and others, you know, I could have shortened the turnaround cycle, I could have shortened the amount of money that was required to invest in some of the growth and diversification initiatives, and I would have been happier. You know, because what I did is, and I think what happened is, I prolonged my suffering, right? By not acknowledging that, uh, and I think you can appreciate this, Absolutely. As you're saying this, it's uh, it's all close to home. Right. By not acknowledging that there are things that weren't working and that I had the responsibility and the ability to affect that change, I was prolonging my own suffering and I was prolonging the things that needed to happen in order to really free the business up to really launch itself forward. And so, you know, where I am today I've gotten past those things and I've overcome it. I'm sure I'll encounter other challenges and there'll be other times where I stub my toe or, or even stumble or worse, you know, that's the life of the entrepreneur. But it was remarkable. Once I was able to be honest with myself and let go and say, okay, these are the things that really weren't working. These are the things that I'm afraid of acknowledging. These are the things that my ego would be embarrassed to say to someone else outside the business And I was really able to to have that conversation with myself. I was able to part ways with all the people that were dragging us down. I was able to to move on from some toxic partnerships. I was able to attract the type of talent and people that were adding energy, not taking energy away. And it was like a whole host of possibilities opened up. And it didn't, you know, it didn't de-risk the business necessarily. It didn't change the, you know, the challenges that we faced you know, structurally, but it improved my quality of life tenfold. It allowed me to project enthusiasm and vision into the business. And it allowed me to attract successful people, uh, attract business partnerships, and ultimately attract money. Because if you're one of the real dangers of not acknowledging failure, and again, it's not acknowledging total failure, it could be acknowledging, you know, failures in certain areas of the business, right? Is that one starts to live in fear fear that people are gonna see that you're a failure, people are, or that you are gonna fail. And when you live in a fear-based environment, or what can easily become from, in financial terms, a scarcity-based environment, you end up perpetuating that scarcity. Whereas if you live in an abundance-based environment, even if you're dealing with uncertain outcomes, that's what you're attracting. You're attracting people who are optimistic versus people who are pessimistic. And, 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 and that drives incredible outcomes. You know, like, again, going back to the earliest lesson from my uh, survivor grandfather, right? You know, a rich man with no money is still a rich man, abundance mentality. A poor man with no money is still a poor man, scarcity mentality. And so yep. the, the hardest thing of all for me in that transitional period was to acknowledge that I had, that I had, become driven by a scarcity mentality and that that was driving a lot of my decisions and that I was the only one that could let go of that, that no amount of additional money or additional clients or anyone would do that. And, and even though things on the outside were great and the business was moving in the right direction, there was a period of time where I was still holding on to those old scarcity stories. And it was ultimately holding me back and I was having a bad experience, you know, and you feel that physiologically, right? You know, I was having high blood pressure and anxiety and all those things that you get when you start to internalize that negativity. And so the way out for me was acknowledging that, you know, I was holding on to things that I needed to let go of and that that was okay. That was okay.
0: Was that a long process for you or did that happen
1: quickly? Was No, there un- un- that? unfortunately not. I think, you know, <laughs> I think that's my learning is, you know, in the future, you want to expedite that process. But again, sometimes people are terrified of feeling bad for even a second and they don't persevere enough to actually give themselves a chance to turn around. And so I'm not saying that, boy, it should have happened in a month or two or six months. You know, it was a year and a half or two, or two years of real transition. You know, it was, four, it was my equivalent of 40 years in the desert. And uh, of wandering in the desert, looking for the promised land. And I had a map and I was following the map and the map, you know, I knew was going to lead me to good things. But the problem was that the best map in the world wasn't going to let me get there until I let go of that baggage that I was carrying. And so that was a big, a big lesson for me is really knowing when to be honest with yourself about what's not working and acknowledging that what your contribution is to those things not working, and then being able to let go of it and then realign with where you want to go, right? And talk about it and be honest with others about it, right? Because that's part of the story because the ego, you know, particularly the male ego struggles with not projecting success, especially in the world that we live in, right? And so to, to embrace weakness as a strength and vulnerability as a strength doesn't come naturally, but ironically, that's the key to being able to get on with it and find some find the next level of success.
0: Sure. Yeah. And it strikes me that, you know, in, in your career you've you've consistently gone and fixed those things mm-hmm. and dealt with the fear around it. And I know there's a great story that I'd love for you to share that's dealing with fear and fixing things, but in a in a much different kind of way. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your time in Iraq and,
1: yeah. and what took you there? Yeah, absolutely. So remember when I was Um, After SmartCasual.bomb, I was in uh, D.C. licking my wounds, uh, helping my friend turn around and and build up and sell off his his company to GE. And this was a company that had acquired a number of satellites uh, for television and and other forms of communication, and uh, some of these satellites had empty capacity. And right after 9-11... If you recall, the, the U.S. and the and the Western coalition invaded Iraq. And as a part of the invasion, in order to limit Saddam's ability to make war, they destroyed intentionally a lot of the infrastructure in the country, the oil wells, the a lot of factories. They also destroyed the communications infrastructure. And so then they hired Bechtel and a group of, of other contractors to come in and begin the process of rebuilding Iraq. And and that involved rebuilding their oil infrastructure, rebuilding their transport infrastructure, and rebuilding their communications infrastructure. And so, you know, because the world of communication satellites and aerospace are very related because you have to build satellites, launch them on rockets, and the same factories that build those satellites also build things like spy satellites, and the same rockets also launch them. You know, the government side of of the telecommunications industry and the commercial side are kind of kissing cousins. And so... I knew someone on the government side who called me up and said, Hey, you still have that available satellite, you know, that you're trying to sell and turn around. I said, yeah. He said, well, we need it for Iraq because there's no communications infrastructure. And I'm just kind of giving you very broad brushstrokes, right? Can you point the satellite at Iraq and, and can you uh, come and build the uh, antenna communications infrastructure? So all these different cities can communicate with one another. And we said, of course, you know, this is when being an entrepreneur can be a liability because I've always been like I'm, I'm, I'm the sober operator, but I'm also yeah. I'm also the yes is the answer. What is the question kind of guy? Right. So I Absolutely. said, oh, yes, we can do that because <laughs> I was seeing dollar signs. Right. Because, you know, government contracting money, especially at that time was massive. So, you know, they had you know, this was an eight figure deal. And that wasn't going to be bid out. And it was just, you know, sign on the dotted line and Bechtel, you know, Bechtel, the government prime contractor for the Iraq reconstruction was a wash in money. And so without really, really stopping to think what we were signing up for, I signed us up. And so we pointed the satellite and we sent our teams, which, you know, were really teams that were designed and trained to, to build communications hubs in, not in war zones. Right, not in complicated <laughs> war zones. Right, they were good at going, you know, outside of a football stadium and building a communications hub so that you could see live football games, or right, or building a, a landing earth, what they called an earth station or a teleport, so that um, you know you could download all the programming and then feed it out to homes on cable. And they were also experienced doing that, you know, over months, not in weeks. That was the other thing. There was a massive sense of urgency. They said, "We'll pay you all this money, but we need something working in a month." right? And so we said to the team, this is an incredible opportunity. It's incredibly lucrative. So drop whatever you're doing, and we're going to put you all on planes, and we're going to fly you to Kuwait. We've got local fixers there that we've talked to, and they're going to get you into Iraq, and then you're going to start installing this equipment. Well, what do you think happened? Right? We bought (laughs) we bit off a lot more than we could chew, and we ended up in a situation where you know, not all of the cities could communicate with one another, and some of the equipment was lost in transit, and it was just a proverbial cluster, right? And so, you know, we get a call from Bechtel, and they said, you know, this is terrible, and we're, you know, neck deep with you in this, and we're on the verge of getting in trouble with the government if it doesn't get fixed. And so, not only are you not going to get paid. And by the way, we'd already made a significant investment in all of this infrastructure for the ground. And we had incurred massive expenses and you know, turning things around and pointing things at Iraq and getting people there. But you're going to get sued for damages. And so the risk oh. was really, really high. And so you know I did what any entrepreneur would do. And by the way, Bechtel had moved all of their infrastructure, including the guy that wrote the checks and signed the checks, to Iraq, to be on-site, wow. right? And they were in the green zone in Basra. So there were two green zones. There was the main one in Baghdad, and then there was a smaller one in Basra, which was which occupied Saddam's former 150-acre palace. And so uh, what any good entrepreneur did, as I said, I said, where are you? said, I'm in Basra. said, where in Basra? In Saddam's palace. And I said, I'll be there in like 48 hours with a team, and, and we're going to fix this. And so I got a team together. We got on a plane, got a visa for Kuwait and flew through Germany to Kuwait, landed in Kuwait like 48 hours later. And our local fixer, like a subcontractor who helps move uh, telecommunications equipment through customs, met us. And I said, OK, well, I've got to get into Basra. He said, well, you can't just walk across the border. And so we had to organize off-duty British SAS commandos. Because, you know, there were still Iraqi soldiers wandering around and there was still, you know, it was, it was like literally unregulated. And then you had U.S. soldiers patrolling the border, you know, with their fingers on the trigger of 50 caliber machine guns and tanks and Humvees driving around, you know, looking for anyone that might be a threat. And from the first Gulf War, Kuwait, which had been invaded by Iraq previously, had, ba- had built an artificial valley separating the two countries, which was a massive tank trap. And so there were all these artificial bridges, basically like planks of steel going across these valleys. And so you couldn't go on the roads because the military had shut down the roads. So we hired these commandos in like a small fleet of, of SUVs to take us on back roads, dirt roads, across the desert, like past herds of camels, you know, and they're holding like, you know, they're holding semi-automatic weapons, and some of them are driving, some of them are riding guard. And we caravan across, we cross this makeshift bridge. And there's this temporary hut, like a little shed, with an Iraqi flag on it, and you know the in the improvised Iraqi government stamps our passport because there was still some border control. But it was like literally a shed, you know, with a, below a ridge with all these bombed out tanks on top. It was a really surreal area. We go to the Basra airport, which had been turned into a British Air Force base. Got permission to go to Saddam's palace. And then we go to Saddam's palace, which is you know, guarded by all these guys with sandbags and machine guns pointing at you when you drive up and get to drive through a chicane. So you couldn't do a truck bomb, you know, attack. So you were forced to slowly wind through while they were pointing guns at you. And then you stopped and they checked your credentials. And then we went into Saddam's palace, which had this, you know, three-story bas-relief of him garbed on the outside, met with the brigadier <laughs> general, you know, who was in charge of the palace. And then we went to the Bechtel offices at the port. And that was my daily commute for a week. Wow. Until we sweet talked them into giving us more time. They, you know, we fixed the hub in Basra. So they were at least able to communicate from that location on satellite and have internet and righted the wrong. So my lessons from that were, <laughs> you know, definitely as an entrepreneur, you still have to say yes is the answer. What is the question? Right. Yeah. But you also have to temper that with what is feasible and what is within, you know, and, and what the consequences might be of making that answer. And so really fine balance and the best entrepreneurs are able to do that intuitively. Right. And they're able yeah. to do that in the moment and are able to not expose themselves to so much downside risk that by saying yes, they actually are taking more risk than saying no. Mm-hmm. And there's more, there's the upside of saying, you know, there there's that imbalance, but, and they're not excluding themselves from a real opportunity by saying no. And it's, it's something that I think, you know, it's a combination of experience and intuition. And I've seen the best entrepreneurs really walk a fine line. And that's also a recipe for success is how to walk that line. But that was that's one true. of those moments where I went out way out over the line. <laughs> and um, And it's, you know, it's a great cocktail party story, but, you know, it was, it was incredibly stressful. I mean, Being in a war zone, which was truly a war zone at that time, still was incredibly stressful. And you know, it's like everything. You know, you say, "Oh, it was a learning experience." Well, you know, there are some learning experiences which we don't have to have. There are. are, Sure. (laughs) um, I feel like to the fact that I've started a film fund and we've started to, you know, invest and and produce independent films, which kind of brings that story full circle. You know, like. You know what's the balance between you know how do you leverage success to pursue your passions and avocations and and what does that mean for entrepreneurs and then I didn't even touch on three right making your peace with new investments or ventures exactly right and you know what's the mental model for starting things I think those are all valuable things so I would I'd offer you some more time if you if you wanted because you know this was stream of consciousness for me I've never done anything like this before. Awesome. Thanks so much, Adam. All right, man. I hope this was... This is great. Yeah? Yeah, really good. Yeah. Okay, cool.
0: So looking forward to continuing tomorrow. Yeah, but absolutely. Thanks so much. Okay, bye. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Hi, it's Michael again. Thanks for listening to this installment of What Didn't Kill You. If you like what you heard, I encourage you to share with friends, subscribe, and review. You can continue the conversation and share your own stories of what didn't kill you at whatdidn'tkillyou.com, and you can follow along at whatdidn'tkillyou on Instagram. I wish you great fortune, growth, and clarity as you navigate your own path, and I hope today's conversation may have contributed in some small way. See you next time.